We are continuing this morning to look at Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Galatians chapter 5. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, that's page 1239. 1239. Last week, we waded into one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament, because, at least in part because Paul is responding to kind of an odd argument from the false teachers. Um, using the story of Sarah and Hagar uh, from Genesis 16 through 21 as an allegory for, on the one hand, Christians saved by grace alone, and on the other hand, for those who would return to or remain in slavery to works righteousness. If you remember from last week, Paul ended with a reminder that we are the children of the free woman, not by blood descent, but by faith. And then concluded with an exhortation to cast out the son of the slave woman. This week, we're picking up where he left off last, last time, following Paul's argument into the next logical step. Before we do, though, of course, as always, we need the Spirit to speak to us through His Word. If you're able, please stand while I pray and remain standing as I read from Galatians 5. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your Word. We come to it, but in it we find life, and where would we go if not for that? Where else could we find life but in You? And yet our sin, is our hearts and our minds are so affected by our sin that we will certainly misunderstand we will certainly misapply. We will certainly twist your word to mean what we want it to mean. You don't restrain us. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray, give us your spirit. Pour out your spirit on us this morning in this place that we might see clearly your truth, that we might apply it faithfully to our lives, that we would worship you through our study of this, your word. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. As I said, I'm reading from Galatians chapter 5. This is God's Word. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, except circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. Freedom, more than anything else, maybe more than anything else in the world, this one word has come to be the sole foundation, the mantra, the demand of our culture. The iconic, almost culture-defining image is of Mel Gibson with blue-painted William Wallace holding up the sword and yelling, defiance against the British, freedom! Freedom! When the national anthem is played at sporting events, most people listen quietly for most of the song until when? When do the cheers start? Because you know we always cheer at the end. When do they start? In that last line, as the, there's this dramatic swell right 
middle of the final line as we sing, or the land of the free. And then there's this big pause and everybody starts screaming and shouting. And then we sing the last phrase almost as an afterthought. Oh yes, and the home of the brave. Freedom is the main theme, the chief value in our society. But what do we mean by that? One sociologist put it this way, freedom is perhaps the most resonant, deeply held American value, yet freedom turns out to mean being left alone by others, not having other people's values, ideas, or styles of life forced upon one, being free of arbitrary authority in work and family and political life. Taylor has argued basically the same idea, but more distilled. He says that freedom in our culture has come to be defined as the absence of any limitation or constraint on us. The absence of any limitation or constraint on us. By definition, the boundaries we have on our choices and our actions, the freer we feel ourselves to be. Modern freedom is the freedom of self-assertion. I am free if I may do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, with whomever I want. But does that hold up? According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, for roughly the last thousand years or so, in India under Hinduism, cows have been venerated and protected as they are believed to be, and I'm quoting, representative of divine and natural beneficence. As of 2018, in a nation with a population density over 12 times the United States, roughly the same density for the entire country as that of the suburbs of New York City just across the river in New Jersey, same density for the entire country, in that nation, there are 5.2 million stray cows. 5,200,000 stray cows who routinely stop traffic, disrupt the marketplaces, uh, destroy fields even. Cows even attack people with little, if any, consequences. Particularly in the more religiously conservative states in India, it is illegal or steeply finable to sell a cow for slaughter. In some states, there are even roving bands of people going around protecting cows by working with police to hunt down cattle traders and then extort money from them on pain of, basically, we would call lynching. If freedom is the absence of limitations or constraints, cows in India are about as free as any creature anywhere, any place in the world. But in his definition, Keller goes on, he says, defining freedom in this way is ultimately unworkable because it is an impossibility. We need some kind of moral norms and constraints on our actions if we are to live together. If we are to live together. It turns out that extreme freedom as defined in our culture, the freedom of selfishness, extreme freedom isn't actually good for us. In India, when a cow will no longer give milk, farmers who are struggling to keep the cow fed and cared for are simply turning them out into the streets to fend for themselves because they can't sell them for slaughter. Those animals are starving and sick more often than not. There are about 1,800 recognized shelters for stray cows in India, and they are struggling and mostly failing to keep up. 
At one large shelter, over 8,000 cows died in a single four-month span. Because even in an organization devoted to caring for them and providing for their needs, even in a nation bound together by a religion that reveres cows, that shelter couldn't get enough food or medical care for these animals. Their freedom is literally killing them. In our passage this morning, we are turning to the third, the law of Paul's letter. It can be divided roughly into three uh, equal sections there. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul responded to the attacks against his own personal history, uh, his own character. You remember as we went through that, uh, gave a, a bit of a spiritual autobiography, we might say, reminding the Galatians of the knowledge they already possessed about him from their own personal experience of him when he was in Galatia before. In chapters 3 and 4, he turns more explicitly theological, countering directly the arguments of the false teachers, uh, particularly with respect to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, because of the work of Christ alone. But, as one commentator put it, the only theology that Paul cares about, that interested Paul, was practical theology. So his letter ends with ethics. To say the same thing another way, in chapters 3 and 4, he told them the somewhat abstract truth. In chapters 5 and 6, he applies that truth to their lives in real, tangible ways. Not always in comfortable ways, but in tangible, real ways. So as we dig into the rest of the Galatians, as we look, forward to the, as we look at the, the rest of this series Be ready. Be prepared. We're going to be talking much more about Christian ethics. How do we live in the world? Uh, To to steal a phrase, how shall we then live? Now that we've been saved, now what? What now? But this morning, uh, Paul is transitioning from that pure theology of 3 and 4 to the application of 5 and 6. He is setting up the rest of this final section of of the epistle, of the letter. Uh, And then, and so he gives us, as any writer would, a good writer, he gives us right up front a statement, topic sentence, uh, and then begins to, uh, that's his overarching point, and then he begins to lay out the shape of his argument. The dangers of a works righteousness and the value and reality of trusting in an alien righteousness, a righteousness not our own. But let's start with looking at the topic sentence in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. What does he mean here? As we've been talking about baptism over the last several weeks on Wednesday nights, uh, is it, I've been, been realizing more and more just how important it is to define our terms, to define clearly and, and, and uh, simply what we mean by the words that we use. Uh, often, particularly though not only online, uh, we, we end up talking past each other because we're using the same word, but we're defining it differently. And so we just we miss each other completely when we talk. Or phrase as well. In, in the case of baptism, as, I, as we've been talking about it these last few weeks, if we define baptism as a public declaration of my faith, then that will ne- have necessary consequences for who should receive the sign. On the other hand, if we define baptism as a statement or promise made by God about you, that also will have a very different set of 
who should we apply this sign to? The definition is what results in how we understand who we apply the sign to. But when we discuss baptism, we just talk about the latter part and not the definition that necessitates the latter part. I think something similar happens here where we talk past each other. We read, for freedom, Christ has set us free, and we just kind of assume know what freedom means. That it is, uh, that we assume the definitions that frankly are just alien to Paul's understanding, Paul's thinking. The easiest is this, Paul is not talking about political freedoms. He's, that's just simply not what's going on here. He's, the things that are enumerated in the Bill of Rights, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, the right to bear arms, freedom not to give self-incriminating testimony, on and on. These things, valuable though they may be, are not remotely a part of what Paul's talking about here. That's just not what he's saying. The only connection is the word freedom. That's it. Roughly, this is, this is roughly like hearing people talking about their favorite football teams and chiming in about your foot disease. The only connection between those topics is the word foot. There, that's it. That's all there is. Similarly, the only connection between the freedom that Paul is talking about here and the political freedoms that we enjoy as citizens of the United States is the word freedom. That's it. But if that's the case, and it is, what is Paul talking about? What is he actually addressing here? The Bible never talks about freedom in the sense of a complete absence of constraints on us. Freedom as we might call it a libertarian or a libertine goal. Rather, it speaks of freedom in terms of a change of masters. From one who is evil, from one who is seeking our destruction, to one who is righteous and seeking our good. Freedom is not being free from a master. It is the freedom to move from an evil master to a righteous master. John Stott said it this way, Our former state is portrayed as slavery, Jesus Christ as liberator, conversion as an act of emancipation, and the Christian life as a life of freedom. The contrast is not between slavery and freedom in the absolute sense, in that, that sense of no constraints at all, but it's between slavery to a wicked harsh master versus slavery to a righteous master. In Scripture, when you see a discussion of freedom, it always, always means freedom in Christ, as opposed to our former slavery to sin, to death, and the devil. We are born in sin, and thus we are evil by nature, enslaved to the sin that we cannot avoid. Because of Adam's rebellion and the curse he merited, we are enslaved to death, doomed to die. And while we wait for that doom, we are tormented by the devil, who, not content to see us condemned, wants to tempt us to ever greater heights of sinfulness until we are finally dragged down to the very pit of hell. That is our slavery. Freedom in Christ, then, is freedom from being enslaved to those things. Freedom from slavery to sin. Freedom from slavery to death. Freedom from slavery to the devil. One commentator put it this way, The only way to be free from the guilt of sin is to hold on to the cross where Jesus died for sins. The only way to be free from death is to believe in the empty tomb where he was raised to give eternal life. 
The only way to be free from the devil is to trust in God's final victory through Christ. Amen? Amen. But there's a tension there too, isn't there? Because as glorious as all that sounds, does it line up with our lived experiences? I would argue that it's not. I am covered by Christ's blood shed on the cross, and yet I still sin. I am raised to new life in His resurrection, and yet I expect to die one day. I trust Christ's victory over the devil, yet I am still tormented by him in this life. So what gives? Should I conclude that I'm not a Christian because those things still happen to me? In short, no. Uh, in <coughs> Excuse me. The Christian life is one of a tension between two realities. We sometimes call this, we kind of shorthand it, the already and the not yet. Um, in Christ, I am already declared righteous and sinless, but I am not yet actually sinless. I will be one day, but not yet. I am already living the new life in Christ. Uh, Excuse me, I'm already living the new, my new life in Christ that He won in His resurrection, but I am not yet physically raised from the dead. I am already free from slavery to the whims of the devil, but I am still attacked regularly. Another commentator put it, put it this way, the Christian stands in the tension of a double reality, basically freed from sin, redeemed and reconciled, Yet he is actually at war with sin, threatened, attacked, and placed in jeopardy by it. There is this dual reality to our lives. As a Christian, you are at the same time holy and yet still striving against sin and death and the devil. We are freed from slavery to the law, from the of earning our place before the Lord, and yet we still strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, as the writer to Hebrews said in chapter 12. This is why Paul can say in the same breath, for freedom Christ set us free, therefore stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Well, are you free or are you standing firm? Which is it? Both and. When we lose sight of the dual nature of this reality, we are tempted to fall either into licentiousness, antinomianism, or legalism. And each of those is deadly. Each of those will destroy you, Christian. Now, the main controversy that Paul has been addressing in his letter, as we've said many times, has been related to legalism. The false teachers are claiming that the Galatians have to keep the law of Moses as a means of justification. They were teaching a syncretism or a working together between the idea dominant in Judaism of the day. Justification was gained by keeping the whole law of Moses with just a little added, little Jesus added on top like the cherry on a Sundae. Make it perfect. Put a last little bit of polish on it. You earn your salvation, but Jesus polishes it up so that it's completely acceptable. This is what Paul has been refuting for the whole letter. That is the that the fundamental nature of salvation is your works with a little Jesus added on top. Now he shows why this is such a big deal, why this is so important, that there is no 
way to combine righteousness by works of the law with righteousness that is by grace through faith in Christ. They are mutually contradictory. They are mutually exclusive. You cannot have both. He says in verse 2, I say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Why? Because if you accept circumcision under the teaching of the false teachers, the Judaizers, if you accept circumcision in those conditions, you are choosing to pursue justification by works of the law. And if you choose to be justified by works of the law, then you can have no part of the justification that Christ gives by grace through faith. You can't have it both ways. Not only that, verse 3, I testify man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. It's not as if you can just have circumcision and then the rest is Jesus. You've got to keep the whole thing. If you choose justification by works of the law, you better make sure you get it exactly, wholly, completely, and totally right. You must keep every law all the time. There is no room for grace in the covenant of works. If you are justified by works... You can only be justified by works. Ultimately, if you choose to be circumcised as a means of justification, you are cutting yourself, verse 4, cutting yourself off Christ. Circumcision in the Old Testament was understood as symbolic uh, for being cut off from the world. Cut off from the flesh, cut off from the devil, and instead pursuing a life of faithfulness to God in the manner that he prescribed. Cutting yourself off from one to be attached to another. Now, as we talked some last week about how the law rightly understood was, is part of the covenant of grace, but as it had been understood for generations in Judaism before Jesus came, uh, it was a means of earning justification, a means of earning salvation by keeping the law, which was a perversion of God's intention in it. But that's what Paul is responding to here. But now, having received Christ, Christ the expression of the covenant of grace, then choosing to return to a false understanding of justification of the law is to reject the gracious covenant of Christ. Accepting circumcision in that instance is not symbolic of cutting yourself off from the world now it is symbolic of cutting yourself off from Christ and the hope of redemption through grace you cannot earn your justification by works of the law and at the same time receive that justification as a gift based on the works of another you can't stand on your own righteousness and at the same time stand on an alien righteousness you got to pick one place to stand they're two are mutually exclusive. Now, as a just a quick aside, some remembering that in Acts, Paul allowed Timothy to be circumcised. If circumcision cuts you off from Christ, is that saying that Timothy wasn't a Christian? No. Basically, Timothy received circumcision not as a means of justification, as the false teachers, the Judaizers, were teaching the Galatians, but rather as a way to, as Paul would say later, be all things to all men that he might win some of them. Timothy was going to be ministering to Jews who held circumcision as a vital component of their identity. 
And so Timothy accepted the sign so as not to be a stumbling block for them. Not, and I cannot emphasize this enough, not as a way to improve Timothy's justification before the Lord. The Galatians, were not, on the other hand, were not looking for ways to minister to people who cared about circumcision. They were being told that they had to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul rejects this about as vehemently as it's possible to reject anything. In turning around to an idea of justification that was wrong in just about every way, Paul says they should stand firm where they are. Be who you are, he says. He explains this further in verse 5. Look at that with me. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Ultimately, justification is not something we work for. It is something we wait for. Justification is not something we work for. It is something we wait to be given. The hope of righteousness is the expectation of what seen the expectation of what is not currently seen that we will one day stand before the lord and hear him say to us well done well done, good and faithful servant but not because we have actually been good or faithful or anything like it but because jesus was faithful Because Jesus was good and we get the record of his faithfulness and his goodness. And so we will hear if we are in him, well done, good and faithful servant, on the basis of what he did. We wait for the day when our justification, the holy status that has been declared over us, will be perfected and our sanctification will be complete when our lives in actuality will finally match the legal declaration of our justification in Christ when the already and the not yet become both already. When sin and death and Satan will in truth have no hold over us at all whatsoever anymore forever. Because, verse 6, in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. You're not more holy either for being circumcised or for refusing circumcision. Holding to either is just another way of making yourself righteous by works. You can either say, I am receiving circumcision so that I will be cut off from the world. Or you can say, I am refusing circumcision because I don't want to be aligned with the legalists and, and so I'm going to... Not be circumcised so that I won't be like them. Both of those lead us away from Christ. This is something of a tricky statement, right? What does have worth? What, count, what does count? Paul says only faith working through love. And, and we're like, wait, what's going on? Paul's just spent the whole letter talking about how no one will be declared righteous on the basis of works, but here he's talking about working. Several weeks ago, uh, I forget how many now, but several weeks ago, I talked about the uses of the law, and I talked about two of them in particular, uh, that the law is a curb for sin. It, it helps just by its existence, prevents sin, and second, that it is, it is a mirror to show us our need of a Savior. So the, the, the law, when we look into the law, we see how very far short of it we fall, and it shows us that we need someone else to keep it for us. 
The law is a curb for sin and a mirror to show us our need for a Savior. But there is a third use of the law that applies specifically and only to Christians. It shows us how to be who we are. Paul has said, beloved brothers and sisters, Christians, be who you are. The law shows us how to be who we are. It doesn't earn us righteousness. It doesn't earn us adoption into God's family. It does show us what it means to be in God's family. It shows us what the family values, what pleases the Lord, the Father who has adopted us. And so Christian ethics shaped by the law as a response to the righteousness that we have already been given rather than as a means of earning that righteousness. We approach the law trusting in the one who gave it, trusting in Jesus who kept it perfectly and in love for him we work out We work to live out the righteousness that he has already given us. We don't work to earn righteousness. We have righteousness in Christ through faith. We work to live that out in tangible, real ways. Freedom in Christ is not the absence of any constraints, as if we should sin boldly that grace may increase. Keller again uses the analogy of a fish. Because a fish absorbs oxygen from water, not from air, it is free only if it is restricted to the water. If a fish is freed from the river and put out on the grass to explore, its freedom to move, and very soon its freedom even to live, is destroyed. The fish is not more free, but less free if it cannot honor the reality of its nature. The same is true with airplanes and birds. If they violate the laws of aerodynamics, they will crash into the ground with catastrophic results, right? But if they follow those laws, they ascend and soar. The same is true of cows in India. Wholly without constraints, they sicken and starve. The same is true in many areas of life. Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right restrictions, the righteous restrictions. The restrictions that fit with the realities of our own nature as we have been created to be and which understand the nature of the world around us. More importantly, finding the restrictions that help us to see the nature and the character of the Lord. The restrictions that allow us to please the one who has adopted us into his family and declared us to be righteous wholly on the basis of the earned righteousness of another. Trusting the one who loves us and whom we love. We do what he says. Most of the rest of Galatians is going to address this idea in practical ways. What does it look like for faith to be working in love? What does that mean? What does it look like? Most of the rest of the book is going to deal directly with that and giving examples of how do we live out our faith in love? What does it look like to work in love? for faith to work in love. But it's hard. 
Robertson McQuilkin was a professor in South Carolina. He's famous for having said, it is easier to go to the logical extreme than to stay in the center of biblical tension. It is easier to go to the logical extreme than to stay in the center of biblical tension. Brothers and sisters, it is far easier for us to go to the logical extremes either of legalism, earning your place before God, or antinomianism, complete rejection of any constraints. But The biblical tension is that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of the work of Christ alone. Now, therefore, live that justification out by pursuing the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's a tension there. We are just, now work out your justification. You are righteous, now work to live that righteousness out. What? It's hard. There's a tension, and yet both are true. We're going to be looking at that for the rest of Galatians as we dig into this. Ultimately, what this boils down to, be who you are. You don't have to strive to be someone You already are someone. You are saved in Christ. You are the child of the King. The call on your life is not become the child of the King. It's you are the child of of the King. Now live it out. Act like the child of the King. Be who you already are. Live in grace and in faith and let that grace and faith work in love in your life. Stand on His grace and live out that grace in real, tangible ways because of the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is a hard thing. We struggle with it. We, don't know, we, we struggle to understand what it looks like for us to be both fully justified, fully declared righteous by you and having to do nothing to earn it, And also at the same time to be called to live it out in tangible, real ways. How do we reconcile that? We struggle. So Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see your truth. Give us grace and mercy to rest from our striving after righteousness as in a means of justification. But at the same time, to so desire the holiness that you call us to that we would work for it as a means not of earning salvation, but as a means of pleasing you who have saved us already. Give us grace to delight in you. Give us grace to desire to be like our daddy who has saved us. And as we desire it, Lord, send us your spirit to work in us and change us that you might make us more holy in truth, that you might sanctify us in truth, that there will come a day when you truly will make us to be what you declared us to be in justification, when the already and the not yet will both be already. Please, Lord, let it be soon. But in the meantime, work in us that we might be pleasing in your sight. Pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.